host, Will Wrights. I load freight with a forklift. I have been a bus driver and a substitute teacher, and I am a history graduate student. I am an ordained pastor, and I hope to become a history professor. In this podcast, we will explore history, theology, pop culture, current events, and perhaps a few other topics along the way. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The opening and closing music is Lo-Fi Summer Background by Vladislav Kurnikov from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. However, if you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you liked and subscribed to Blue Collar Scholar in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast distributor. Writing a review, leaving a five-star rating, and sharing links in your social media platform is also much appreciated. Thank you for joining us. Second Continental Congress is where we're going to pick up today. So we talked about it last time. It convened on May 10th, 1775. This is about three weeks after the Battle of Lexington and Concord. Now the Second Continental Congress was already scheduled to be convened anyway because the First Continental Congress, which was just a, a, a month and a half meeting, which is always strikes me as interesting because the First Continental Congress is just a short you know, month and a half. Second Continental Congress is years and functions as our first federal government. But the First Continental Congress established the boycott and sent a petition to the king, so they had to schedule another meeting so they can discuss what already happened before. In all the reading in the last two weeks, I can't get a clear answer to this question about whether or not the Second Continental Congress was always going to meet on May 10th or whether they rushed it a bit. I get the sense that they rushed it a bit with Lexington and Concord that they went ahead and decided we need to meet now so we can make decisions and plan and organize and and whatnot. Well, when the Second Continental Congress was meeting, the different state groups, delegations, didn't arrive at the exact same time. I'm not telling you anything shocking here, but this is before air travel, so people don't arrive like on the same day. Their horses will come into town at various times, and so John Adams and the Massachusetts delegation, they arrived a few days early, and they, the whole delegation was already starting to lean towards independence. Because the war, Lexington and Concord are in Massachusetts, they're getting pretty sick of Britain's crap at this point. So they were already leaning this way. Well, the Massachusetts delegation was met in Philadelphia by a small, unofficial welcoming committee, including, the welcoming committee included, Benjamin Rush. And I didn't know much about Benjamin Rush, but in preparation for this class, one of the books I read was a book about Benjamin Rush. He was a fascinating guy. He was at the tail end of the medic- when the medical profession was all about bleeding and leeches and stuff, but he was also at the forefront of mental- treating mental health as actual science and medicine instead of like demons and stuff. So he's a, a transitional figure there, but he also served on meetings and committees, and he was on the Second Continental Congress, but not just yet. 
as the Second Continental Congress is getting ready to be convened, he's not. He has not been selected by Philadelphia or by Pennsylvania to serve on the Continental Congress, but he is a leading citizen in Philadelphia. He decides to step up and welcome the Massachusetts delegation. He pulls John Adams aside and tells him, please tread carefully. Most of the delegates who are coming to the Second Continental Congress are upset about what's going on, but are also decidedly against independence, especially delegates from places like Georgia, South and North Carolina. South Carolina might, I get the sense they were maybe a little bit more pro-independence since they've got Charleston, Charleston, right? Savannah's in Georgia, Charleston. Since they've got Charleston right there, they've got a lot of trade traffic and whatnot, so they're they're feeling the effects of all of Britain's, you know, the, the intolerable acts. But North Carolina, Georgia, these kind of places are still pretty loyalist. And so don't don't push it. If he basically Rush and the other Philadelphians who dis, who welcomed the Massachusetts delegation, they said if you come in here acting like Massachusetts, if you come in here smarter than everybody else and you know more than everybody else and we're going to pound the table and tell you what 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 it is, you're, you're probably going to alienate a bunch of of these other delegates. So tread carefully and let Virginia take the lead. Because Virginia was not seen as radical. Massachusetts and Rhode Island were seen as the more most politically radical of the colonies. Virginia also is really the most... You've got the maps. Uh, take a look and see. Yeah, look at the, the that particular map. Yeah, no, the one of the what the United States looks like at the time. So, yeah. So, right in the middle is Virginia. So Virginia is at one time it's both a southern colony as well as a middle colony. So it's got it, it feels culturally as part of the North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia block. But it's also kind of really in that Maryland, Pennsylvania, New York, well, maybe not New York, but New Jersey block, the middle colonies. And it also is the most populous of the colonies. It's got, uh, I, I think I remember, over 20% of the population of the 13 colonies is in Virginia at this time. If Virginia and Massachusetts and Pennsylvania were to combine their populations, they would out, they would be more than all the other the other ten colonies combined. It's the most populous. It's also already at this point is starting to get renowned for having the most military acumen, political acumen, intellectual acumen. People like Thomas Jefferson were very smart and, and accomplished intellectually. So it's got a lot going for it. But quietly, Virginia was also starting to lean heavily towards independence. Even though they weren't seen as radical as Massachusetts, they were starting to lean that way, and I think Benjamin Rush sensed it, particularly with a man by the name of Patrick Henry. That's the book I'm reading now, by the way. So I've decided at the beginning of this semester I'm going to read, I'm, I'm not going to read books about Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, George Washington, and Benjamin Franklin. First of all, I've already read those books. I'm going to, I want to bone up on all of the founding fathers I haven't read books about. And Patrick Henry is an interesting fellow. He was probably the closest thing to a self-made man in Virginia at this time. Most Virginians were pretty aristocratic. 
they come from wealth, their families were pretty wealthy, so you have like the Lee family, which we're going to see some Lees here in a second. Robert E. Lee is probably the most famous now, but even by the point of the American Revolution, there's five or six Lees that could be considered founding fathers, who are generals, diplomats, they sit on the House of Burgesses in Virginia, some, some of them will go on to be governors of Virginia, they sit on the Second Continental Congress, it's a very big family. It talked in the Washington book about um, them being, a lot of Virginians were part of the planter class, so they were wealthy. They're like wealthy farmers. Yeah, they, compared to the, some of the other It's like farmers. comparing a, a farmer who uh, is, actually goes out and runs his own tractor and, and does all the work. That's not really a planter. The planter would be like Monsanto. or mm-hmm. uh, Actually, Monsanto's a seed company, but one of the big corporate farms. That's basically what they were the corporate farms of their day. So while Jefferson and Washington and some of these other guys will do some manual labor on their farm, they don't really have to. For, for one, for a very dastardly reason, they own slaves who do a lot of their manual labor. But they're wealthy enough that they can spend their days you know, reading philosophy and going to salons and discussing the important issues of the day and they can hire local poor whites as both laborers and overseers of slaves and they can let them do a lot of the the dirty work. And so Washington was a trained surveyor for instance so he was not opposed to going out and getting his hands dirty but he didn't have to so he was definitely part of that planter class. Patrick Henry wasn't part of that planter class like Jefferson or Madison or Washington or the Lees. Patrick Henry was from the hill country. He was a small town lawyer, kind of shades of Abraham Lincoln, very similar. Both were intelligent, mostly self-taught, strong individuals. He was a firebrand who was basically what I would call a liberty extremist. So basically the idea is... A govern any government should only withhold your liberty if it's absolutely necessary. So, for instance, I should be free to do whatever I want, but if whatever I want includes shooting, you know, my neighbors because they irritate me, yeah, that's obviously not. So, the government should step up to keep me from doing that. But if I want to smoke marijuana, watch foreign soccer on my TV, if I want to I don't know. I'm just coming up with things. Things that, that, that's other, that people might find annoying. I listen to hard rock music, that kind of stuff. Patrick Henry would say, you should have the liberty to do all that stuff. He, he was a liberty extremist. Now, he was also heavily religious, so he probably wouldn't agree necessarily with the, like the marijuana stuff. But interestingly enough, as a religious person, his father and mother came from different religious traditions. His father came from the Church of England tradition. His mother came from the Presbyterian tradition. And at various points in his adult life, he attended both churches. Sometimes he attended both churches on a Sunday. So he had his foot in the more high church concept, but he also had his his foot in the Scots-Irish hill country, redneck, hillbilly, which is basically what the Presbyterians were in, in Virginia at the time. And it really influenced his his political development as well as his religious development. And by the way, as a person who was a liberty extremist, he also grew to uh, resist 
basically any centralized authority. And he saw centralized authority as a vehicle for unnecessarily limiting liberty, a person's individual liberty. This is, by the way, why he will go on to be probably the most prominent anti-federalist when we talk here in a couple months when we talk about the Constitution. Patrick Henry was not a fan. He was not a fan of the Constitution. He thought it made the central government too powerful. Patrick Henry's finest hour probably came on March 23, 1775, at a meeting called the Second Virginia Convention, as Virginia is discussing how their state will function as a potentially independent nation, you know, or, or colony apart from Great Britain, potentially, as they're discussing what that kind of stuff will look like and how their government should be established and what it should look like, what the legislator will look like, what the executive will look like, all that kind of stuff. He gives a speech, and the denouement of the speech is probably his most quotable line. He said, If we were base enough to desire it, it is now too late to retire from the contest, from the Revolutionary War. There is no retreat but in submission and slavery. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable, and let it come. I repeat, sir, let it come. It is in vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war is actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Oh yeah, I don't know much of definitely orator shades of a lot of these founding fathers. Now I'm not sure about Patrick Henry though. He didn't have a classical education, but a lot of these founding fathers would read the ancient Greek and Roman orators like Cicero and Washington, for instance, would intentionally mold his entire career around well at least up until he becomes president around the ancient Roman Republic figure known as Cincinnatus, who was given extraordinary power as a dictator in the Roman Republic during a moment of crisis. But then when that crisis passed, he willingly laid aside all his powers and returned to his farm and became a farmer. And that's what Washington knew about this story because you know, that's what, if you were highly educated at this time, you were educated in the classics. So you knew about all this ancient Greek and Roman history. And Anyway, th that's what this sounds like. This sounds like an, a Cicero speech to me. That give me liberty, dramatic pause, or give me death. It was such a rousing moment that it would go on to become, at least for a while, the unofficial slogan, or what word am I looking for? Not anthem. I'll just say slogan, of the United States. It was, soldiers would, would say it on the battlefield. It was put on shirts. It was not t-shirts, but it was like battle regalia. 
So he wanted liberty, but not from a central government, because he didn't want the central government. Well, at this time, the central government is Great Britain. So for now, he's resisting Great Britain. Here in a decade, and about 13 years, no, yeah, about, no, about a decade, about a decade later, as the United States is preparing to ratify the Constitution, at that time, Great Britain's no longer in the picture. For him, the central government at that point is the potential new constitutional government, which he sees as too strong. At this time, give me liberty, give me death, he's talking about Great Britain and its tyranny. So anyway, I say all that to say this, that Virginia quietly is starting to be just as radical as Massachusetts, just without the reputation. After all, the Boston Tea Party can go a long way of establishing your reputation as a radical, or as a hotbed of radicalism. All right, so from May 10th, 1775, until July 4th, 1776, the Second Continental Congress functions as the de facto government of the United Colonies. They're not an independent nation yet. In fact, at the time, it wasn't even sure whether they were going to become an independent nation or whether they were going to become 13 independent nations or maybe maybe they'll become a new southern nation and a new, new, uh, a new England nation. It, it was unclear at this time. So in the Federalist Papers, they talk a lot about the Confederacy. Is that Confederated states? Is that what they're talking about? got to be what they're talking about. So you're, you're already reading the Federalist Papers? What they're talking about is they're talking about the, the Articles of Confederation. Oh, okay. That so the United States of America as a sovereign nation has had three federal governments. The first one was the Second Continental Congress. And then the Second Continental Congress gave us the Articles of Confederation which was one of the first great state papers of the United States. And the Articles of the Confederation established the framework for a weak federal government, intentionally weak. At the time, they, what people wanted were strong states and a weak government over the top. But the problem it was, and we'll talk, a lot of, we'll talk about no, this we in much more wait, detail. We'll talk about this in much more detail. But the problem was the, the, having a weak central government, the federal government under the Articles could not raise taxes, but also they had very limited power to raise any money. They couldn't do import duties and stuff like that. They basically, in order to pay any of their debts, they had to ask the states to, please, sir, may I have another, you know, may, may we please have some money so that we could pay off war debts, so that we could, uh, you know, maybe start a navy, you know, all the kind, you know, build roads, post offices, whatever. It, 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 it takes money to run a federal government. And the Articles of Confederation had no, gave no authority to the federal government to raise any kind of funds. It also, the Articles of Confederation was birthed in a time where everybody's fearing tyranny. The Articles of Confederation is made in the very last days of the Revolutionary War. So everybody's still thinking Great Britain, powerful central government, telling us what to do. So the founding fathers wanted the federal government to be weakened, so one of the things they did was they made it so you had to have unanimity. All 13 colonies had to agree on any decision that was made in the Confederation Congress. In theory, that might work on 
obvious issues, like jury pools are, most states have, you have to have unanimity amongst a jury. That is so that you don't end up convicting people who you're only 55% sure are guilty. It's got to be beyond a shadow of a doubt, and if you have 12 guys that, 12 ladies and gentlemen who all agree that, yeah, we're pretty sure he's guilty. I'm not 100% sure, but the evidence is pretty clear. If 12 people can come to that conclusion, then that's a that is a, a level of reasonable. Conclu- uh, that's a reasonable conclusion when you have 12 people in unanimity. Problem is you can't create policy that way, because on any policy, one colony can throw everything into the throw throw a monkey wrench into the works, as uh, states would often do. So New York was a trading hub. So anything that they felt that hurt their themselves as as a trade center, they canceled everything. Rhode Island canceled a lot of stuff just because they were afraid of big states. It was just unworkable. It was absolutely unworkable. And none of the European governments took the United States seriously under the Articles of Confederation. So Alexander Hamilton and James Madison and others, but those two especially, really felt like a change needed to be made. But we'll get to that in a couple months. The, the, we will spend a lot of time on the Constitution. Oh, good, because I don't know much about it. <laughs> From the moment they convened in May on May 10th of 1775 until July 4th, 1776, the United States doesn't exist. The About the best term you could use here is United Colonies. But the Second Continental Congress has to function as if they are a national government. The beginning stages were more similar to the United Nations, and I mean that in this way. The UN functions as a de facto government, but it specifically does so without changing the sovereignty status of any of its members. So the United Nations tries to make decisions to help the world as a whole and its member states, but it can't make any decisions that impose its will on UN nations which more often than not leaves the UN kind of toothless, but most of the world is okay with that. We, would, we don't want a world government. Uh, United Nations in which world governments communicate is fine, but we don't necessarily want a world government. Well, that's kind of what the Second Continental Congress, that was kind of the, the constraint that they had. They had to function as a de facto government without changing the sovereignty status. And in this case, the sovereignty status was we are colonies under Great Britain. So it was really a difficult task because there's a whole lot of loyalists. In fact, I didn't have time this week. I I really wanted to go through and look at all the individuals in the Second Continental Congress and pinpoint which ones were went from loyalist to patriot and how they... That was just a lot more work than I had time for this week, unfortunately. But that's one of the things I would like to track, or find a book where somebody's already tracked, how certain individuals, like John Dickinson, for instance, if I have my names right, I think he's the one who slowly eased into independence and really was kind of debating against it all the way up until July of 1776. In his own mind, you mean? No, he was debating on the floor of the Continental Congress. He was the one that wanted every to slow walk the process, let's not do anything rash, 
let's give the king and parliament every chance to prove that they'll listen to us and fix the problems that are going on. Whereas people like John Adams were ready to sign a Declaration of Independence on May 10, 1775 from the moment they stepped on the floor of the Second Continental Congress. So not everybody is on the same page. They get there. It takes over a year where everybody everybody gets to the point where they feel like they can cross that that line and sever those relationships. But for a year and a few months, the Second Continental Congress has to behave like they're the federal government of an independent nation that's not independent. And in reality, what we're trying to do is Ostensibly, what we're trying to do is we're trying to improve relations with our mother government across the sea. It was complicated. It was complex. It's like I mean, your cake and eat it too. Sounds like. Well, and under those conditions, I think the Second Continental Congress did actually a pretty good job. Okay, so the the fact that the Second Continental Congress functioned as uh, this kind of de facto government without changing the sovereignty status of the colonies is highlighted by the fact that one of the Second Continental Congress's first accomplishments was something called the Olive Branch Petition. Now, last week or the week before, I used that phrase, Olive Branch Petition, to describe something that came from Britain. I used it to describe Parliament's attempt to mollify the colonies by taking away taxes and duties to any colony which agreed to renounce rebellion and was willing to pay for its own government and defense. So as long as you're not expecting Great Britain to pay for all of your local government and all your defense and you're willing to renounce rebellion, then we'll take away a bunch of taxes and duties. Well, the Second Continental Congress rejected that olive branch from Britain but it was a boon to the Canadian colonies because the Canadians weren't rebelling anyway, so they got a bunch of their taxes lowered significantly. So it was great for them. Well, that, I called that an olive branch petition from Great Britain. I probably shouldn't have done that because as I was reading further, there actually is something called the olive branch petition, capital O, B, and P. But that was from the Second Continental Congress to Great Britain. What the, all capital letters, the olive branch petition... What it was, was a, an attempt by the Second Continental Congress to console Great Britain. It affirmed the colony's loyalty to Great Britain and specifically its loyalty to King George III and it entreated the king to cease hostilities against loyal colonies. Because you, you say, we're loyal, and since we're loyal, please stop fighting us. And that was the Olive Branch Petition. However, the Second Continental Congress gave mixed messages. The Olive Branch Petition was signed on July 5th. This is 1775, so we're a year away. But on the very next day, they signed something called the Declaration of the Causes and Necessity of Taking Up Arms. So I'll repeat that again because it's a bit wordy. The Declaration of the causes and a necessity of taking up arms. So basically it was their justification for why they're fighting. So they extend an olive branch, but at almost the same time they say, but we're justified in doing this. We're justified in shooting at you. Also, a week earlier, on June 27th, they made a decision to invade Canada. And we talked about this a little bit when we talked about Fort Ticonderoga. 
that that invasion will go miserably bad. The soldiers will get smallpox. They'll lose their ability to fight. They didn't go into Canada with enough soldiers. For some reason, the French Canadians were just not interested in joining a rebellion against Great Britain. Uh, it, it was a disaster. Uh, at least one general died. Benedict Arnold, who at this point is not a great traitor, he is still one of our greatest generals, he gets wounded to the point where he's basically taken out of action for a while. It was a bad decision to invade Canada. Well, in August, so we're still 1775, in August the king officially rejects the Olive Branch Petition. But it is unclear whether he even ever read it. It's possible that people just told him what he said and he just rejected it out of hand. Because some people report, or there are some reports that he refused to even consider the petition at all. Instead, he, with a royal decree, declared that the colonies were in a state of rebellion. This is called the Proclamation of Rebellion on August 23, 1775. So the king's refusal to consider the colony's grievances put wind under the sails of those people who wanted independence. So up until this point, most people who were wavering, because you'll always have loyalists, you'll have some people who will, who will stay loyal to Great Britain the whole time, and after the war are either going to move to Great Britain or move to Canada. And some of them maybe can't afford to do either of it, and they're just going to be unhappy in the United States. But there's always going to be people who, on principle and on feeling, are going to be loyal. And then you have, on the other hand, you've got people who, on principle and feeling, are going to be patriotic and have wanted to do independence for years now. But in the middle is where most people are at. And most people are kind of, you know, well, here's some arguments for staying loyal to Great Britain, and here's some arguments for declaring independence. Well, most of the people in the middle, King George III was seen as a big reason to stay loyal. He, you know, a king, a good strong king with hundreds of years of stability behind the throne, and I'm sure, I'm sure he's not a madman who's, you know, kind of a, a dilettante and rich, spoiled kid, which he, he, of course he's all these things, but... You know, I'm sure he's a wise Marcus Aurelius type leader. I'm sure he's wonderful and great. But then when he, when the king gives this speech and makes this proclamation, most of the people in the middle start, at least start, moving towards independence. Because if the king's not even going to listen to our, our, our entreaties. So we are, we've already concluded that Parliament is full of a bunch of fools who hate us. And now if the king's also a fool, why do we need to be part of this? So, during this time when the United States of America doesn't exist yet, the Second Continental Congress had to start doing some things that an independent nation does. For instance, they had to conduct the war. They had to create an army. We talked about this last week. They appointed George Washington over the army. They had to appoint other officers. They had to appoint ambassadors. They had to sign treaties. They sought foreign alliances, and they issued paper money called Continentals, which was almost worthless when they were printed and just became more worthless as time went on. Nevertheless, all that stuff is things that independent nations do. Colonies who are content being colonies of a foreign power don't do any of that stuff. And yet the Second Continental Congress did all of that. So who gave the Second Continental Congress all this authority? 
Well, its legal authority was sketchy. By design and for obvious reasons, they did not get this legal authority from Britain. The Second Continental Congress is not an authorized body of the colonies uh, as far as Great Britain is concerned. The Second Continental Congress authority was, in theory, granted by colonial legislatures. But those colonial legislatures themselves are not have kind of a mixed legal authority as well. For, as far as I can tell from my reading, Britain usually now remember there was a they made passed a law, the Massachusetts Government Act, where they totally messed up Massachusetts government because Massachusetts the Boston Tea Party and stuff. But for the most part, as, as far as I can gather, Great Britain tolerated legislatures on all the other colonies to do like local concerns. Parliament doesn't need to be deciding whether they're going to build a small bridge over the James River, you know, 20 miles north of Williamsburg. They don't need to be, Parliament doesn't need to be worrying about that stuff. That's the job for the House of Burgesses to make those kind of decisions for Virginia. So they, Parliament, for the most part, tolerates these legislatures, but they basically carry an absolute veto. If none of these legislatures can make decisions that Parliament disagrees with, they could just nullify anything. And the king has that power as well. So these colonial legislatures can't therefore really give authority to a Second Continental Congress because Parliament's not going to allow them to have that authority. Nevertheless, these colonial legislatures are the ones that give their authority to the Second Continental Congress. They are the ones that select delegates to sit on the Second Continental Congress. But they also denied the Second Continental Congress's authority to collect taxes. By the way, I'm careful to always use all three words, Second Continental Congress, because people at the time would just refer to it as Congress. But that's confusing to us because we have a Congress, and that's nothing like Second Continental Congress. The word Congress just means a gathered group. That's all Congress means, is, is, is a gathered group. But I always use the word Second Continental Congress in order to be clear that we're not talking about the First Continental Congress, we're not talking about the Congress that sets under the Articles of Confederation, and we're certainly not talking about the much bigger Congress that sets under the Constitution. So that the state legislatures denied the Second Continental Congress's authority to collect taxes. They could only ask for funds from the colonies. And colonies, and, and after independence, the states, frequently ignored these requests. In fact, this is just the beginning of... Uh, this is probably the major issue that caused the Constitution, was uh, having a, a central government so weak that you can't even pay your bills. That's one of the big reasons why we have a Constitution. At least, I mean... I won't say that's a big reason we have a constitution today, but that's certainly the reason why they had a constitution by 1788. That they had decided that this can't go on anymore. Alright, so by 1776, so we're in a new year, by 1776, the Second Continental Congress was starting to move towards independence. So it's after the king has issued his declaration that the... Let's see, I'm, I'm not going to use declaration. That can get confusing. Let me use the actual word. 
proclamation of rebellion. So once the king makes his proclamation of rebellion and declares all of us wicked colonies in rebellion and refuses to listen to anything we have to say, then people are starting to move that way and so is the Second Continental Congress. Frustration with the king and with parliament and with the war, people are already starting to get sick of the war, is rising and in the midst of that comes a bolt of lightning. Common sense. This little booklet was published on January 10th, 1776. By the way, enter Benjamin Rush again. Dr. Rush wanted to wanted something like this to be done. He was one of the early advocates of independence. And then along comes Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine was from England. He was a British radical. He immigrated right about the time that the war begins. He was incredibly intelligent, maybe a bit squirrely. Benjamin Rush was a much quicker writer. Thomas Paine seems to have been a bit of a perfectionist and took forever to write this thing. But Benjamin Rush encouraged Thomas Paine to write it, and he was an editor on on the pamphlet. But it was not Rush's work, it was Paine's. So more about Paine. I said he was a British radical. He immigrated right about the time the war began. He was a strong Republican. And I mean this term in the British sense. He opposed the king. He opposed the king's policy and believed that a good government does not have that kind of inherited monarchy. He was also a deist. He said that he did believe in God, but that he didn't think Jews, Catholics, Orthodox, Protestants, or he, none of us had got it right. That there probably was a God, but we're all wrong. And He basically functioned as an atheist. But an atheist in the modern sense of the term, one who has a positive belief that there is no God, there really aren't any atheists at the time. These, those kind of atheists would be very rare at this, at this point in history. In the 1790s, he moves to France and participates in the French Revolution. So Thomas Paine is a fascinating figure. In fact, one of the books that I hope to have read before the end of this semester is a book about Thomas Paine. So like I said, I'm trying to read about the other founding fathers. Anyway, in his, in his book, Common Sense, he argues that it is common sense that America should be independent. After all, an island shouldn't rule a continent. That was the common sense. Common Sense, the booklet, called on America to reject nobility and to pursue at least some form of representative democracy. In the pamphlet, he actually offers a suggestion for what, if you, if you, and Wikipedia does, by the way, if you want to go on Common Sense and scroll down, it there's a layout of exact what exactly the government he calls for would look like, and it's a little convoluted and complex. But what he's trying to get at is he wants a representative government where the voice of the people is established and the executive can't overrule the voice of the people so the voters create a representative democracy. In many ways it's similar to what we have today. But his plan was a lot more convoluted. Common Sense ends up becoming a 47-page pamphlet. I thought it was a... I thought, there, I thought it was like a magazine. He wrote several of them. No, is it just You're probably thinking of the Federalist Papers. Maybe. 
Yeah, the Federalist Papers is a, a series of releases that was designed to support the ratification of the Constitution. Now that I think about it, common sense might have done that too. It might have come out in, in sections, segments might have come out in local newspapers. Um, it looks if, like it started out as a Yeah, but if that's the case, I was about to say, I'm, I'm pretty sure, because when it hit, it hit big and made an instant cultural clash, uh, or clang like a symbol. Now, 47 pages, that's long for a pamphlet. Can you imagine if you've ever done, as a Christian, if you've ever done handed out a tract, you know, for about you know encouraging people to come to Christ, and those things are always about five, six pages. You don't want it to be too wordy. Imagine a forty-seven page. So it's long for a pamphlet, but it's short for a book. Yet still, it is, and I had to double check to make sure this was true. It is the most published book by an American writer, or by somebody who wrote in America. He was an immigrant, so I'll call him an American. So, for instance, the Bible is the most printed book in American history, obviously, but nobody who wrote the Bible was an American. I think we can say that without being too controversial. So, for an American book, it is still the most published book. Originally, it was published with, I don't have exact numbers, but like 10,000 copies, and those sold out quickly. So they quickly rushed to like 100,000, then 200, 250,000, half a million. And then, Another printer comes along and Thomas Paine agrees to to work with another printer. He writes a new introduction for this new printer and this new printer starts pumping out hundreds of thousands. But the old printer, this is before this kind of copyright law, the the old printer says, as far as I'm concerned, I still have rights to print too. So he keeps printing the older version without the new introduction. And not only that, but people bootleg it so they... I don't know. In the days before computers and copies and paste, it had to have been a lot of work because you would have to like write it down or set the typeface. But they, there were bootleg copies as well. All in all, it was estimated that there was at least one copy of Common Sense for every four human beings on the North American in, in, in what would become the United States. At least one copy for every four people. It was. It had an incredible impact. So, by 1776, as I said before, the Second Continental Congress is starting to move towards independence. Common sense is a big reason for it. Before common sense, people were kind of whispering about independence. After common sense, people were really talking about it. And bars and taverns and church foyers and living rooms and salons and everywhere, people were talking about independence, debating one way or the other. The colonial governments, though, weren't necessarily on board, and this is by design. The colonial governments still, most of them, most of these legislatures are, they sit with the authority that was granted to them by Great Britain. So a lot of the, not I wouldn't say a majority, but a lot of the people in these legislatures are loyalist or semi-loyalist, or they don't want to poke the bear at least. So the Second Continental Congress decided they needed to do something about it which was a little bit tricky because the delegates to the Second Continental Congress, many of them, or at least some of them, came with instructions not to seek independence. Their governments told them that this is a step they can't take. And some of the colonial governments were dead set on maintaining fidelity to the crown. Yes, fight the war, which is a strange position to hold. 
we're going to stay faithful to the crown, but keep fighting the crown. But we'll keep fighting the war. We'll go to the bitter end to, to get our grievances met, but we're not going to sever that connection. So, the Second Continental Congress decides that it's time to change things. In May, and I'm going to come back to April here in a second, but in May, the Second Continental Congress encourages the colonies to convene new constitutional conventions to establish new governments, governments strong enough that they could persist if and when we go independent. Because some of these colonies, their legal authority was in a state of limbo. If we declare ourselves independent, in theory, there is no government. Because for a lot of these colonies, the government is the colonial government of Great Britain. If we're independent, in theory, there is no government. So if you hold a constitutional convention with elite individuals selected by the populace who will then meet and discuss and come up with a plan to establish a state government. They're still colonies, but what's going to become a state government? Even if the constitutional convention meets together and says, what we have now is good, we just we now have this authority that we meeting as the elites of this state who have been selected by the hoi polloi of the state that's the authority the the authority is the people the people have given us the authority and the state as it exists now sure it's good we won't change anything now we might change later but the the government exactly as it exists now can keep going existing with or without independence well in april so this is even before the Second Continental Congress encourages people to do this. On April 12th, North Carolina sends new instructions to its delegates, allowing the delegates to the Second Continental Congress to vote for independence. On May 4th, Rhode Island, which is always the most radical of the colonies, Rhode Island takes an extraordinary step. They actually renounce their ties to Great Britain. This is, let's see, May, June, June, this is two months before July 4th. So for two whole months, in theory, Rhode Island is the United State of America. Well, I don't know if United works, but it's the, it's the independent colony. It is the, the one only independent state. Now, whether Great Britain is going to recognize that independence, no, they're not. And at least not until the Treaty of Paris when they recognize the independence of all of the colonies. But yeah, Rhode Island jumps the gun. For two months early, they declare their independence. Virginia, taking the lead, as Benjamin Rush suggested to John Adams, let Virginia take the lead. Virginia pushed for its delegates to break the connection with Great Britain. Oh, by the way, that's a picture of Thomas Paine. Handsome-looking fellow. Enter Richard Henry Lee. There's one of those Lees. One of the Lees. Richard Henry Lee's cousin is Light Horse Harry Lee, who is a general who serves under George Washington. Light Horse, Light Horse, by the way, is a nickname. His mother didn't name him Light Horse. Light Horse Harry Lee is Robert E. Lee's father. So Richard Henry Lee would be Robert E. Lee's cousin once removed. Richard Henry Lee, who, by the way, is not, he's one of those delegates who's not sure whether we should seek independence. But he was selected nonetheless as the highest ranking member of the delegation 
to put forth what became known as the Lee Resolution on June 7, 1776. The Lee Resolution reads, in part, resolved, that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states. That they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain, notice the lowercase g, I don't know whether that was intentional or not, that all the political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. So this is it. This is the resolution for... Now, the Declaration of Independence is going to be a lot wordier, but this is it. This is the move towards independence. The logic of the resolution was sound. Great Britain was the one who engaged hostilities. So we, at that point, we had a choice. We could either capitulate and we none of our grievances get met if we just lay down our arms and let Great Britain dictate terms then we don't get anything. Or we fight, and if we fight, then we need to fight to win. And if we fight to win, then we need to have foreign nations who would aid us. But no foreign nation, not France, not Russia, not Spain, not Portugal, no foreign nation is going to come to the aid of British colonies who are actively trying to remain British colonies. Why would France do that? That is, by definition, an internal matter. And it's historically not a good idea to mess with nations' internal matters. I mean, how would you like it if Kansas and the United States federal government were having a disagreement about, I don't know, let's say we wanted to change the drinking age to 22. And there was a big fight, and then um, Senegal... You know, in Africa, decides they're going to step in and and mediate for us or dictate. No, it should be 25 or whatever. You know, we we wouldn't be happy if another nation came in and messed with our internal affairs. Well, France isn't going to get involved if we are British colonies and we're fighting to remain British colonies. Only independent states can engage in such alliances and have such allies and etc. etc. So. The Second Continental Congress then establishes the Committee of Five. These five men were all part of the Second Continental Congress. So it is a, a committee, a smaller group of, yeah, it's a, it's a smaller group of the greater whole. The big three are Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, John Adams of Massachusetts, Thomas Jefferson of Virginia, but it also involved Robert R. Livingston of New York and Roger Sherman of Connecticut. Roger Sherman is not a name most of us know, but it ought to be, because he turns out he's the only person to have signed all four of the, quote, great state papers. He signed the Continental Association. If you remember from the first Continental Congress, that was the first time the colonies acted in whole for a specific purpose, and that's the boycott, to boycott British goods. So he signs the Continental Association and the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the Constitution. He's the only person to sign all four. The committee tasked Thomas Jefferson with coming up with the first draft of the what would be called the Declaration of Independence. Now, I've heard anecdotes a lot saying things like, 
he wrote the whole thing in a night that John Adams tricked him and, and wouldn't let him contact his wife until he got done, that kind of stuff. And as far as I can tell, that's all hogwash. And because he had two and a half weeks. Thomas Jefferson finished his first draft. He worked on it from June 11th to June 28th. So for two and a half weeks, he works on the wording. And what he comes up with is extraordinary, but he doesn't, it's not like the Ten Commandments coming down fully formed. It What he creates is a lot wordier than what we're going to read here in a little bit. His draft was uh, completed on the 28th of June, and he, he gave it to the committee and the five of them together. They edited it down a little bit, and then they submitted it, submitted it, that's a lot of it, 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 it. <laughs> They submitted the Declaration of Independence on June 28th, and then the Second Continental Congress, sitting as a committee of the whole, then cut 25% of the length. They also weakened language on slavery in order to appease the southern states. Now, Thomas Jefferson famously is a slaveholder, and he's from Virginia, a southern state, which will be the lead state in the Confederacy a few generations later. So that kind of shocks people, but Thomas Jefferson's attitude towards slavery was always ambiguous. Unlike Virginians of later years who would argue that slavery was a good, a good part of society, that it was, some people even argued it's good for the black people because they get to come here and work hard for their living and. Like they're trying to tell us. And, yeah, get Jesus, and, and they're, at least they're not living on, you know, starving to death on the African plain as pagans, which is all a bunch of. You know what? But at least Thomas Jefferson realized that slavery was was bad. Even, if you remember the Patrick Henry quote we said earlier, he mentioned slavery like five times. And he's not talking about chattel slavery of Africans. He's talking about Great Britain treating white Americans as slaves. That kind of using slavery as an obvious negative thing is true even into the Confederacy speeches. They'll often talk about the federal government treating us as slaves and Reducing us to slaves, etc., etc. Thomas Jefferson knew slavery was bad. He wanted to end the slave trade for two reasons, and they're opposing reasons. Like he wasn't, he didn't have absolute integrity on this issue. One reason is he hoped that by ending the slave trade, that they would cut off the flow of slaves and would hasten the eventual decline of slavery. Of course. Basic human reproduction statistics ought to let you know that if you cut off the slave trade completely, you're still going to increase in slaves. If all black, if all blacks born under slavery are new slaves, you're still going to get more slaves. But he hoped that it would hasten the decline of slavery. But also, if you don't have a slave trade, then those who have a surplus of slaves will then each slave will be worth more and more money. Well, Virginia has a surplus of slaves. Uh, especially, and this will be true even later, after the cotton gin is invented, but Virginia has more slaves than it needs, whereas in the Deep South, after the cotton gin is invented, you've got all these cotton plantations. Cotton doesn't necessarily grow as, as well in Virginia as it does in Alabama, for instance. Well, if Virginia has more slaves than it needs, then it can sell those slaves to Alabama and Mississippi and earn a killing if the slave trade is gone because you can get cheap slaves by kidnapping them from Africa, or you can pay exorbitant rates for Virginia slaves from people who don't need them anymore. And, of course, Thomas Jefferson is going to gain from that because he has a lot of slaves. He's got more than he needs. So he wants slavery to die, but he also still wants to get rich off of it. 
So his attitude towards slavery was ambiguous. He also, in a lot of his writings, he especially early on, he wanted to pass the blame for slavery on to the king and to Great Britain, that it's their fault, they're the ones that brought it here, which I guess technically is true. The, the British were the ones that brought slavery to Virginia in 1619. Of course, the Spanish and the Portuguese had brought slavery to this continent and the South American continent 100 years before that. And there is good reason to, to believe that several of the kings from 1619 until the 1800s did benefit, did earn a lot of money off of the slave trade. Well, all that language was kicked, it was taken out of the, of the Declaration of Independence because they didn't want to irritate Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina. All right, so we've now come to the point. We're going to read our most important document it's either this or the Constitution. Washington didn't. Deep down, he didn't like slavery, but he needed he needed the slaves to work his plantation. Plus, he had a aversion to splitting up families, so he wouldn't sell somebody from a family, which was a good thing, but then they just kept getting more, like you said, having more. And at least Washington freed his slaves when he died. Thomas Jefferson did not. He freed his slaves, but he couldn't free the ones that he... Oh, yeah. He, his he, wives that, went, that she brought to the marriage. But he did free his. That was a fascinating story, by the way. I really am so glad I read that book. It might be one of the better ones that I've read in my life. His Excellency his, his by Ellis. That's good. All right, so we have about 40 minutes left. That's plenty of time to read this. We'll see how much time we have left. And, of course, we'll, we'll stop and discuss the wording of this. This is the Declaration of Independence. Oh, okay. Declaration of Independence. So, like I said, Thomas Jefferson gave an... This is six pages typed. Of course, I did put the letters a little bigger so they're easier to read. But So it's about four Thank pages. <laughs> it's about four pages typed. So it's not... The Declaration of Independence is not short. But Thomas Jefferson had it a fourth longer. So a lot of his, the wording was taken out. So, and by the way, I took this straight from the website for the National Archives. So this is the official wording, which is interesting because there are a handful of copies, and all the copies have slightly different, like maybe a spelling error or a capitalization error. Each copy has, is slightly different from the others because they didn't have Xerox machines back then. But this is from the website of the National Archives. So as far as I can tell, this is the official document right here. In Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous Declaration of the 13 United States of America, that's the first mention of our new, nation's, our new nation's name, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. Now, Thomas Jefferson was another deist. His deism wasn't as strident as Thomas Paine's. Thomas Paine will go on to write a book called The Age of Reason, which is kind of a full-court press against what he saw as religion or religion's power or religion's hypocrisy. Thomas Jefferson will do something else. He'll take the New Testament with a pair of scissors and, and cut out the miracles because he wanted, what he wanted to do is he wanted to highlight Jesus' teachings. He saw Jesus as a great moral teacher. He just didn't want any talk about walking on water and feeding the 5,000 and stuff. But, so, but anyway, he, he's not 
he's not against using religious terms. And so here he's talking about the laws of nature and nature's God. A decent respect of to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to separation. Now, as far as I can tell, and I think I picked this up from one of the history books I read recently, so as far as an expert who has a doctorate in this stuff can tell, this is unique in world history. It wasn't necessarily seen as a given that you have to explain what you're doing when you make these kind of political decisions. But the Declaration of Independence basically says right here that we need to explain what we're doing. And that's what the rest of this document is going to do. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Which will be words that are tricky for a nation with, with so many slaves in it. That they, men, the, the, all men who are created equal, are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Originally, it was going to be the pursuit of property. But the pursuit of happiness has a more philosophical ring to it. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So right here, the Declaration of Independence says that the true political power comes from the people, not from a king or from a monarch. And of course, Monarchs have what are what is called the divine right of kings. That kings have been given a right from God to rule. The Declaration of Independence declares that governments get their power from the people as a whole. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. In other words, we shouldn't do this at the drop of a hat or on a whim. It's gotta be, this has got to be a grave and solemn decision. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. In other words, most people are willing to put up with crap instead of take such a drastic step. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism. It is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations. And I find this interesting that they've, they've swung so much in less than a year from the king being, king being our hope. Parliament's the bad guys. It's the king is the problem. To now, the king is the boogeyman. Uh, the history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. 
All right, any questions before we go into the whining about the king? If you guys have any comments or questions, just jump right in. I don't want you to feel like you, you can't do that. He, the king, has refused his assent to laws the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. So in other words, he basically establishes it so that all laws have to go through him and he can't be bothered to actually pass all the laws that should be passed. He refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. In in other words, no taxation without representation. If we're going to be under the government, then we should have seats in the House of Commons. And since you won't let us do that, then we're going to separate ourselves from Parliament. We're going to have no connection to the House of Commons, and we're going to have our own Congress. And they will have representation. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the direct repository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. I'll be honest, I'm not actually sure what he's talking about here. Unless this could be, for instance, a refusal for... Maybe... I'm not sure. If I'm trying to remember in the books I've read recently whether the king ever refused to allow, like, for instance, the House of Burgesses to meet in Richmond instead of Williamsburg or something. I'm not sure exactly what they're talking about there, but apparently they're, they fear that the king is making people meet at strange places for the legislators. But he's making them meet in England, right? Well, see, that's the tricky part is, as far as I can tell, that's what the colonies wanted. They wanted to have members of Parliament meeting in London, which would be strange and unwieldy. That's probably a big reason why Parliament never acceded to it. Now, today, with jet planes, that wouldn't be a problem at all. I mean, Hawaii has representation in Washington, D.C. That's a lot farther from Hawaii to Washington than it is from Boston to London. But in the days of ships, that that's really tricky. But if, for instance, the king required all of the Massachusetts legislature to meet in London, that would be weird. But I don't, I'm not sure that, in fact, I am sure that that never happened. I'm not entirely sure what they're talking about here. All right, he has, the king has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of people. This is directly talking about the Massachusetts Government Act, which dissolved the government of Massachusetts. But it's, this is also referring to frequently when governors, and at this point, governors all work directly for the government of Great Britain, either the Crown or Parliament or both, where often if the, the legislator of a colony is making a decision that the governor knows the king won't like, he'll just cancel that legislature, or, or at least put them into recess at least. He has uh, refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected. In other words, you'll dissolve the House of Burgesses in Virginia and then won't allow us to create a new one for months or years later. 
whereby the legislative powers incapable of annihilation have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. In other words, you guys, well, he's blaming the king directly, but you guys, the British government, you will dissolve our legislatures when you don't like what we're doing, but in the meantime, we have no way of making decisions like what if the Cherokee nation decides to attack or what if you know what if Spanish pirates attack our coast we need to have legislators to organize this kind of stuff so we could in, in moments of crisis where we can make decisions and you're not allowing us to do that he has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose obstructing the laws of naturalization of foreigners refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. So the government of Britain had restrictions on migration, and then this I think this is referring to the Quebec Act here, where the Quebec Act took away the Ohio River Valley and the Trans-Appalachia, so uh, Tennessee, Ohio, Illinois, taking all those away from the colonies. So are there notes somewhere of what... It was when they sent it, when you said they cut out, cut out a fourth of it. Is there notes? Yeah, I'm sure there is. I would be, if I did some, did some digging in the National Archives, there might be first drafts available. But if not, I'm sure, the Internet's a wonderful place, and so I'm sure that, that first drafts can be found. He obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers, he has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount of payments of their salaries. In other words, judges aren't going to be partial. They're going to make decisions that benefit the king because otherwise they're not going to get paid or they might get fired. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. So he has sent, they eat out their substance, I think is referring to standing armies. But he'll create new offices and then send British people over here to hold those offices. Which is interesting because most of the, like Thomas Hutchison, for instance, was a loyalist governor of Massachusetts, but he was an American. He was a descendant of Anne Hutchison, the religious revolutionary from early colonial days. He, He was born here. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. So in other words, martial law, that when the standing army is around, then they're the real power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution. And the word Constitution here means how the government is formed. Or what they're made of. Yeah. A term that people... Yeah, I was about to say, a a term you don't hear often, uh, very much anymore, people talk about having an iron constitution. And, uh, I'll just read this part again, he has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. For instance for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, 
for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without consent, for depriving us in many cases of our benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for, and I'm pretty sure the others are too, but I'm going to stop here for a second. Have you noticed what he's talking about here? These are the intolerable acts. This is exactly what we talked about uh, two weeks ago and last week. For abolishing, a, and by the way, for transporting us beyond the sea for pretended def, uh, to be tried for pretended offenses, usually they weren't taken all the way back to London. They, they were taken to places like Halifax in Nova Scotia. So that's not really across the sea. That's just to a different colony. For abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments, for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever, he has, so all that, all those, everything that began with, with four there is modifying the last line on part three. So all those are part of that crime. This is a new crime. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. That, to me, he should have started with that one. You're fighting us. You're literally fighting us right now. Your armies are in our country and are killing us. That's why we're declaring independence. That's what he should have started with. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. I'm assuming he's talking about the army here. King George III certainly didn't do any of that. He is, at this time, transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy, scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy of the head of a civilized nation. That is a lot of words to say that he's hiring German-Hessian mercenaries. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. This, by the way, will be a problem that is goes well beyond the American Revolution. This is a big reason why we fight the War of 1812. This is called conscription, where when the British Navy needs more men, they just take more men. If you're a British citizen, then we'll take you and conscript you into the Navy. The problem is that when the British Navy goes into some place like uh, Bermuda, and let's say you're an American. Now, I'm, I'm assuming this is like the 1810s here. So you're not a British citizen. You're from, I don't who cares, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and you're in Bermuda just having a drink, and the British Navy comes in, and they'll just say, well, you're a British citizen, and you'll be like, no, I'm from Connecticut. Oh, no, you're lying. You're from Liverpool. And then they'll just grab American citizens and force them to serve in the British Navy. That's a thing Britain did a lot at this point in history.
I mean, this was a real crime. I mean, this was this should not be legal. They did it because they could, basically. He has excited domestic insurrections among us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages. I don't like this wording, as we shouldn't like this wording. Whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. This is interesting words because the British Army might say the same thing about colonial fighters because remember as they're retreating from Lexington and Concord, the colonials are firing from behind bushes and stuff. This is at a time when civilized armies got a nice neat little rose and fired at each other. So to then accuse Native American warriors of fighting undistinguished because they fight differently is pretty rich. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. I'm sure they were. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature. So now he's whined about the king enough, now he's going to whine about parliament. By their legislature to extend an unwarranted jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of our circumstances, of our immigration and settlement here. In other words, we're British people too, just because we live over here. We have appealed to their uh, native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and consanguinity. You know, I'm going to on it, I'm going to admit here. I don't know what that means. We must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war and in peace, friends. Which is an interesting phrase here because that describes our, our historic relationship to Great Britain. In war, we're enemies. But after the after at least the War of 1812 is over, we'll be great friends. By the time you get to World War One and World War II, we're thick as thieves. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by authority of the good people, capital P, of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states. Pause right there. Notice, right now the Declaration of Independence is actually a declaration of independence for 13 new states, plural. The concept of a United States singular is something that really kind of comes over time. And as we discussed in the Civil War class, it's really not until after the Civil War that most people think of the United States as a nation and then each of the individual states more as provinces. At this point, people are more likely, if you were to ask somebody from 
Philadelphia, what is the name of their nation, they would probably say Pennsylvania. If they're a loyalist, they might say Great Britain. It's unlikely they would have said the United States of America. Jumping back mid-sentence, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. And that as free and independent states, they, see plural, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, when you see providence with a capital P like that, that's another name for God, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, signed, these guys. We won't read all their names. Those five guys? No, this is, this is uh, actual, all their signatures. Now notice, I've noticed this today, that there's two columns for Massachusetts, there's two columns for New Hampshire. I believe that's because the last person to sign for New Hampshire, he, he didn't come for several days. The reason John Hancock has his own column for Massachusetts is because he is the president of the Second Continental Congress at this point. That's one of the reasons why his signature is bigger than all the others and with all that flourish. Historically, we tend to say that see that as him being arrogant, and perhaps he was. But he also is the, officially, he is the leader of this organization at this time, and so he's his signature is front, center, right in the middle, and bigger than all the others. Any question about that? That is either our first or second most important American document. Now let's conclude. After the Declaration, things change. So at this point, the Second Continental Congress functions as the first government of the USA. It was also the last of the colonial cooperation congresses. So the Second Continental Congress is both. It was colonial cooperation, and then now it is basically the de facto federal government of a new independent nation. A lot of what the Second Continental Congress does from now on will be war-related issues, and we're not talking about the war tonight. So we'll come back to a lot of, of what else the Second Continental Congress does. But here's some stuff that's not war-related. They assign diplomats. So the number one American diplomat was Benjamin Franklin. Diplomat to what? Well, in Benjamin Franklin's case, he leads a delegation to France to try to establish. And at other times he, oh, I don't have it here, but I believe he also serves as a diplomat to Great Britain at a certain point. And see, now we use the term ambassador. At the time, the term was minister. But diplomat is a word that encompasses both of those. So Benjamin Franklin is basically is our nations, the independent nation. We're now talking about the United States of America. He is the U.S.'s first foreign ambassador. Benjamin Franklin already had experience in Europe as a colonial representative. And many times he acts as an agent, not only of Pennsylvania, but for other colonies as well. So, for instance, after the Boston Tea Party, as Massachusetts agent, he gets harangued by the House of Commons. 
Benjamin Franklin went to France as part of a three-man commission along with Silas Dean and Arthur Lee. So there's Silas Dean, and as you see there, United States envoy to France in the years that he served. So about two years? Yeah, a little less than two years. And then Arthur Lee, whose Wikipedia page is mighty short, so I'm not sure if Arthur Lee did much. And I I didn't have time to, to do enough research to see if he's one of the Virginia Lees or not, but I imagine he probably was. So these three guys, I'll go back to the most important one, Benjamin Franklin. These three guys are our first diplomats. And for a couple years in France, they, they're met with futility. But while they're struggling to try to get a French alliance, to at least get France to acknowledge our independence, while he's, all that's going on, he becomes incredibly popular in France. Benjamin Franklin was seen as both highly intellectual but also rugged. Rugged frontier, you know, kind of a man, kind of a mix of a mix of Albert Einstein and Davy Crockett, all rolled up into one. It was not uncommon, for instance, for him to wear a, like a, a coonskin cap, like a frontier man. It, but it wasn't until after the American victory at Saratoga, which we haven't talked about yet, that France finally became receptive to our diplomats. And they finally accepted Benjamin Franklin as the American minister to France in 1779, thus becoming the first American ambassador. We've already talked about Silas Dean and Arthur Lee. Now let's talk about John Adams. This is, I had to do a little searching. Most of the portraiture of John Adams online is from him, his time as a president. By that time, he is much older and looks it, too. Here's a younger picture of Adams from around the, the time when he was sent to France to join Benjamin Franklin. He replaced, I believe, Silas Dean, but I'm not sure about that. He was sent to replace one of the three. Adams was not that impressed with the venerable Franklin, at least not in Paris. And he did not like the fact that they were all just kind of sitting around doing nothing, waiting for France to deign to accept the American ministers. He did not have a good time in Paris. He missed home. He missed his wife. John Adams and Abigail Adams have the most, have the richest, healthiest marriage of all the founding fathers as far as I'm concerned. And Abigail Adams was every bit John Adams's intellectual peer, and that's saying a lot. John Adams was an intellectual powerhouse. He missed his home. He missed his wife. He felt useless there, so he went home. But he was sent back in 1779 in order to negotiate the Treaty of Paris to begin the process of ending the war. But then once again, this time it's not the French dragging their feet, now it's the British dragging their feet. It would, in fact, be four years. So if, if John Adams is sent in 1779, the Treaty of Paris isn't signed until 1783. So it'll be four years. So while the British were dragging their feet, he took it upon himself to say, I'm already in Europe, let's go do something else. So he goes to the Netherlands and starts establishing American relations between the United States and the Netherlands, at this time referred to as Holland. Holland is one of the constituent states of the Netherlands. I don't know enough about the Netherlands to know what the others are, but Holland is the big one. But at the time, he goes to Holland, what we now call the Netherlands. And then, of course, after, we're not talking, we're just talking about Second Continental Congress time frame here. 
Later, he will serve as the United States Minister to Great Britain under the Articles of Confederation. So he, his diplomatic career is, is long and distinguished. Francis Dana, not quite as good-looking as all the other founding fathers. Francis Dana was Adam's secretary in Paris. While in Paris, the Second Continental Congress decided to send him to Russia to try to secure American recognition from the court of Catherine the Great. And then John Jay. John Jay was a significant figure. I left. It's, it's not really pertinent to what we're talking about tonight, but he was the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States of America. He is also one of the authors of a few of the... He's, he's the third author of the Federalist Papers, which you're reading now. James Madison... Actually, Alexander Hamilton writes the majority of them. James Madison probably writes the most important of them, including Federalist 10. Jay writes, I think, five of them. Maybe only three, but I think it was five of the Federalist Papers. So I have a question. Go ahead. About the Federalist Papers. Mm -hmm. And those three men wrote, but they wrote under Publius. Did they they three know? Were they working together? They They had to have been. Not necessarily. They were working in concert, but not together. They didn't meet to discuss things. My theory is... And it's only a theory because I haven't had the time to look into it. I'm sure there's entire books about how the Federalist Papers was written. But my theory right now is that Hamilton focused on the stuff he was really good at, particularly financial issues. So any of the Federalists that deals with finances, 100% chance Alexander Hamilton wrote that. John Jay tended to write those that dealt with the judiciary because that would become his issue. And then James Madison wrote those that particularly had to do with legislatures and, and, and whatnot, because so, that becomes his forte. Even though he is our fourth president, he probably has a greater impact on the history of the United States as a representative and a senator. And actually his greatest contribution, let's face it, is the Constitutional Convention, because he is, he is the driving force behind the U.S. Constitution, James Madison. So they Madison. all just knew they were writing and just signing in public. public. Publius. Yeah, I'm pretty sure my I don't know how, if Jay had kind of an editorial role, but I'm pretty sure James Madison and Alexander Hamilton worked together at least a little bit so they would know what they were writing. I mean, you wouldn't want for one thing, if I were James Madison, I wouldn't want Alexander Hamilton to just write anything because you don't know what he's going to say. Right. Alexander Hamilton was incredibly bright. But he also, like at the Constitutional Conventions, gave a speech where he said the president should serve for life, which nobody else agreed with him. Nobody else agreed with him on that one. And so if I were James Madison, I would want to, I would want to be able to at least read Hamilton's work before it was published, but I don't know that for a fact. Uh, real quick on Jay, what was, why are we talking about him now? Well, he was our ambassador to Spain as of 1779. Spain agreed to fight Britain during the war with France as their ally on behalf of America, but strangely, Spain did not recognize American independence. It was, it was a weird situation. It took a while for America to get respect on, on, a, on the international stage. Really, honestly, it took the Treaty of Paris. Once Britain reluctantly granted our independence, then other nations were more willing to grant our independence. I want to spend the rest of our night talking about flags, because I find flags interesting. 
Uh-oh, you'd be like Sheldon. Yep. This is fun with flags. <laughs> the top flag there is the East India Company, which is an obvious inspiration for the United States flag. The Grand Union flag was the one that was uh, flown on, on some of our earliest battles. So it, in theory, that's our first flag. But it was never our official first flag. So is that the Union Jack, supposedly, in the, in the corners? That is the yeah, Union Jack, yes. The, you notice yeah. the East Indian Company has the elongated Union yeah. Jack, and the Grand Union flag has a smaller one. Interestingly enough, that Union Jack is in one of our state flags today. Hawaii, of all states, has the British Union Jack as part of its state flag. So, in some of our earliest battles, the Grand Union flag will fly as the closest thing we have to a flag. On June, I think I, I wrote 17th here, but I think it's a mistake. June 14th, I'm sure, because it's Flag Day. That's why it's June 4th is Flag Day. June 14th, 1777, Congress declared that the flag of the 13 United States be 13 stripes, alternate red and white, that the union of be 13 stars white on a blue field. Now, interestingly enough, that, that was all they said. They didn't indicate which stripe should start first. So you, the Francis Hopkinson's flag started with white stripes on the top and bottom, which is an objectively uglier flag. And on, on like right here, you could see on a white background, you can't even see the bottom stripe, and the top stripe is only indicated by the blue. You can see where the blue ends. His navy interpretation ends up becoming a lot more, a lot closer to what we have today. The fact is, there was no official flag. The first official flag is actually only those guidelines that I read to you. 13 stripes, blue field in the corner with 13 stars. But that leaves a lot to interpretation. So for instance, the Betsy Ross variant, and there's lots of reasons to believe that the Betsy Ross story is pure fiction. But for, this, for the moment, let's assume that it's true. Betsy Ross of Philadelphia uh, was given instructions from George Washington to create a flag, and she created the circle. Anyway, that variant was a flag that existed at the time. There was the quote-unquote cowpens variant, which had 12 stars and a 13th in the middle. No clue what that 13th was supposed to be, whether it was Virginia or Massachusetts or any state in particular. Then, of course, you had these, which look a lot closer to what we have today, with the 13th stars in, in a field instead of in a circle. But the fact is that there is no actual official first flag. The first flag instead was just a set of guidelines with the stripes, the blue, the red, white, and then the blue, and then the stars. So that's, yeah, June 14th, I have it written right here. June 14th, that's when we, with the 13th. But then, uh, from then on, we start uh, expanding because we get more states. In 1795, they went to 15 stars, and they also went to 15 stripes. That makes sense. But they only had the 15, they, they only increased stripes one time. I, my guess is they realize we can't keep doing that or eventually you're going to have little lines instead of stripes. So in 1818, they go back to the 13 stripes, but they go to 20 stars. Now, that doesn't mean that Tennessee, Ohio, Louisiana, Indiana, and Mississippi all came in at once. Rather, there was no push to update the flag from 17, 
95 to 1818. That's why you'll see there, there are unofficial versions of the flag that were created in Tennessee and Ohio with stars to represent them. From that point on, every time new states get added, and by tradition on July 4th, that a new state gets, a new flag gets approved by Congress. So on, I'm assuming all these were on July 4th of the year stated. So we don't have to read all these, but it went from 21, you guys could see the states mentioned, from 21 to 23 stars, and then one star each of these years as we add Missouri, Arkansas, Michigan, Florida, Texas, etc., etc., etc. And then we get up to 1861, and they have a 34 stars for Kansas. That's the flag that will fly for half of the Civil War. And I'll show you a picture of that flag here in a second. So when the Union, when the Union Army goes and fights, they're fighting with a flag with 34 stars. Now, you'd think maybe they would take off some stars for the states that left for the Confederacy. Nope, because the United States federal government did considered only the individuals within those states to be in rebellion. The actual states were still part of the United States even though they were in rebellion. During the war they added a 35th star and that was still still officially the Union flag for the later battles. Then we don't have to read all these states but they keep adding and then in 1890 we got a whole bunch of western states all at once so we jumped from 38 to 43 stars. Though there were some unofficial 39 star flags for some of these states wanted to fly flags with their star on it a little early. And then the last American flags were added with Wyoming, Utah, Oklahoma, then in 1912 the New Mexico and Arizona. And then that 48 star flag will be our flag for 47 years. So that's actually the longest America, most of these flags were only uh, official flags for a few years at a time. But for 47 years, including both world wars, we flew a 48-star flag. And then in 1959, we added Alaska. Later that year, 1959, we added Hawaii as a state. So the following July 4th, the 50-star became our flag. And now it's been 62 years. So this, the 50 Star flag has been the Ameri official American flag the longest. I was in junior high and it was a big deal. I remember in school. I remember too. Now, do you? I, I was about to say, when, when, do you, do you remember when they went to a forty-nine and then the next year they went to fifty? Because forty-nine, if you think about it, would be seven by seven. It, it makes so much sense. Oh, yeah. And so then you add the fiftieth, you're like, oh, yeah, I don't, oh man. I don't recall there being different. The stars being. I don't remember the flag, but I remember. Oh, the look is. I should have got a 49er. Uh, 49er. I've got Super Bowl on my brain. But I should have got a 49 state flag and then compared them to a current state because it's a different field. The flag with 49 stars is 7 by 7. The 50 state flag is. Are you kidding? Did I not get a 50? Yeah. Anyway, you all know what the American flag looks like. We've had it for 62 years. Yeah, this is what it looked like with 20 stars. Here is the flag that, this is the can. This is when Kansas got. This is the flag that flew for the first half of the Civil War. And then, in the second half of the Civil War, they just added another line to the, to the middle line here. So it would, 
35 was a good number too because it's 7 by 5. And anyway, you all know what. Actually, here. Interesting. Dun, da, da. Oh. <laughs> and then this is what our flag looks today. like today. Oh, did you? Good. So you can see, so the current flag alternates. You've got 6 by 5, so 6, 5, 6, 5, 6, 5. And you, so that's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. 9 by 6. So that's the, that's the field of stars now. But the, when Alaska was added, but Hawaii wasn't added yet, it was 7 by 7. Uh -huh. So it actually looked quite a bit different for being just one star different. And then one day, we'll probably add Puerto Rico. You think? I think so. Either that or we'll let Puerto Rico go independent. I think eventually Washington, D.C. will become a state, and I think they'll get their own uh, star. Although my feeling on Washington, D.C. is they should... For all the people in Washington, D.C., they absolutely should have representation in Congress. So what they should do is all the neighborhoods in D.C. should just go back to Maryland. Washington, D.C., therefore, would only be the federal district, the, the National Mall, and then the monuments, and the White House, and the Capitol. So in theory, once that happens, oh, and the Supreme Court, and all the really important stuff. In theory, once that happens, the only resident of Washington, D.C. will be the president and whoever else lives full-time at the White House. Everybody else will, all the other residents of Washington, D.C. will now be Maryland residents, and now they have represent, that, that was just is one option, but yeah, people who live in Washington, D.C. are pushing hard for statehood. We are five minutes over. Do you guys have any questions or comments? So the last thing, I've only got one more issue here, March 2nd, 18, 1781. The Articles of Confederation are adopted, and we will talk about that later. Once the Articles of Confederation are adopted, the Second Continental Congress officially becomes history. So the Declaration of Independence came first, and then the Articles of Confederation? The Declaration of Independence is, ju is just exactly what it says. It just declares our independence. Mm -hmm. The Articles of Confederation is the document which frames the government. Okay. That's it. have enjoyed this production of the Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. Any factual errors made in the preparation or recording of this podcast are unintentional, and your feedback is welcome. You may contact me at thewillwrights at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-W-I-L-L-R-E-I-T-Z at gmail.com. The Blue Collar Scholar is written is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you will be back to download more. And thank you.